The Indian Child Welfare Act, the law that seeks to protect American Indian children from being removed from their tribes for adoption or foster care, came almost 25 years too late for Sandy Whitehawk. Things come out along in your life. Something you may recall happened or you have a sensation in your body or a blip of a picture. And it's something that happened when you were 10. Then it, later on, if something will pop up and you were 20 years old when that happened. That's why it's so hard for those of us that have endured years of complex trauma. We can tell it chronologically, but that's not how we recall it. The first time she shared a flashback about being removed from her Sichangu Lakota family, White Hawk was in her early 20s, serving in the military and on a bender with a friend. This little blip, it was like just seconds of a picture, would come into my mind. And the, the recall is the sensation of being lifted and placed in a truck and put between these two individuals you know, strangers, and I was terrified. But in my initial recall, I wouldn't have even used that word because I was 18 months old. So there weren't any words. The adoption happened in 1955, when White Hawk was removed from the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. It took her years to piece together the buried memories, the feelings and the words to describe them. But now, I remember everything about that moment, and that happens with people that experience trauma. You have like a hypersensation. I remember how my adoptive mother, her skin felt, because it was a hot day, so she had like a sleeveless dress on, and I saw her skin. I saw the striped bib overhauls of the who was going to become my adopted dad. I remember the dashboard. I remember the stick shift, everything, and of course, afraid. Whitehawk recalls the stunned look on her friend's face when she told her this, that night that they were drinking. Later, an avalanche of other memories would follow. Bad memories. Because Whitehawk's adoption, like those of a disproportionate number of American Indian adoptees, did not have a happily ever after outcome. And that's why she has collaborated with Ohio State Assistant Professor Ashley Landers to research adoption and foster care outcomes for American Indian children. When the U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments next fall to strike down the Indian Child Welfare Act, Whitehawks and Landers' work will be among the research cited in an effort to save it. This is the Ohio State University-inspired podcast, a production of the College of Education and Human Ecology. I'm Robin Chenoweth. Carol Del Grasso is our audio engineer. Before the Child Welfare Act passed in 1978, 25-35% to of all American Indian children in the United States had been separated from their families and placed in foster homes, adoptive homes, or institutions. 90% of those placements were in non-Native homes, outside of their culture. That amounted to hundreds of thousands of Native children being severed from extended families and any knowledge of their heritage. Their tribes, in turn, were further decimated as families and communities suffered the loss. But the impact on the adoptees was even greater. Officials would seemingly rather place Indian children in non-Indian settings where their Indian culture, their traditions, and the entire Indian way of life is smothered. The federal government, for its part, has been conspicuous by its lack of action. Senator James Aberusk of South Dakota 
was head of the Indian Affairs Committee, which in 1978 led hearings on Native adoptions in which birth mothers and grandmothers testified. Senator Aberisk, his parents immigrated here and landed in Rosebud, South Dakota, on our reservation. And they owned the grocery store in Mission. Well, I was pregnant with Bobby, and the welfare kept coming over there and asked me if I'd give him up for adoption. There's footage in the film about him saying, you mean they asked you to sign him over before he's even born? And just the way he asked that question, you could hear in his intonation, that's ridiculous. But he grew up knowing we loved our children and that regardless of the poverty and regardless of the hardships and what was happening, they took care of their children. And yes, it was hard, but it certainly wasn't the solution to help us economically, was it? The solution was to take the children, the unwanted child. Oh, they did such a propaganda around it, calling us that, you know, we weren't wanted. I was told that all my life. They didn't want you. Ashley Landers, who came to Ohio State's Human Development and Family Science Program in 2021, works with White Hawk, director of the First Nations Repatriation Institute, to study the issue. The reality is that there are thousands of Native children who've been displaced from their homes, and this continues to be a problem across the country. It is the systematic removal of Indian children and the implicit bias of the child welfare system that targeted Native families that makes this issue so pressing. So it's not that Native families are more likely to engage in maltreatment of their children. We don't believe that the rates of maltreatment differ, but that the issue is this, the child welfare system's systematic bias and misunderstanding of Native families that constitutes their removal. Even before Sandy Whitehawk was adopted, churches and then the government ran military-style boarding schools with the intent of scrubbing Native children of their spiritual and cultural traditions. These targeted interventions that the government implemented, you know, kill the Indian, save the man. I mean, that's the slogan. That was the intention. It's white individuals applying systemic bias and believing that Native children would have been better off had they been raised in white homes. Their hair was cut. All of these efforts were targeted towards them to help them assimilate. And the idea was to sever all connection to culture. As adoption became a more efficient assimilation tool, private agencies stepped in to usher the process. The Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, was revolutionary because it gave sovereign tribal governments control over where their own children go. The law says that they first must be placed with their extended families, and if not families, then with tribal members. Only if no other native home can be found can the child be placed in a non-Indian home but even today, adoption agencies find workarounds, and enforcement in some states is lax. We are virtually a commodity for the adoption industry. The adoption industry is like a billion-dollar business. And the going rate for adopting an Indian child is around fifty dollars to $60,000. Who gets that money? The adoption agency has to pay their people. You got to pay the lawyer. It's big business. So when the act was passed in 78, it was passed addressing the systematic removal that was happening. But today we're creeping up there again in the rate of removal 
In February, the Supreme Court agreed to hear a challenge to the constitutionality of ICWA. Seven people in three states, Texas, Louisiana, and Indiana, say the law intrudes on state governance and violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution because it, quote, plays favorites based on race. Now we've got this case before the Supreme Court. Are you, do you fear yeah. that it's going to be overturned? <laughs> I do fear it. I do fear that because people don't know and they don't get educated. They only know what is getting presented to them. And the adoption industry has done an incredible job of creating a narrative that adoption is the answer, that children need a forever home. Mm -hmm. And yet they could be being placed right into an alcoholic home, a a home that's going to abuse them. That's a case that White Hawk has been making for years including as a qualified expert witness in court cases involving adoptions of Native children. She reunited with her tribe in 1988 and later helped found the First Nations Repatriation Institute, helping Native adoptees find their tribes and seek paths to healing. Integral to her work is educating people that being transracially adopted creates its own unique set of lifelong issues that are painful and complex. Those issues can grow like a cancer, deep and undetected. But White Hawk doesn't shy away from talking about the abuse that she experienced at the hands of her adoptive mother. It's part of her story, she says. To survive things, you tuck memories or experiences away, and the mind has an incredible way to just make that go away. <laughs> but it doesn't go away forever. That's the that's the issue. It does have a, um, a time where it forces itself upon you and you were either gonna deal with it or or not. It was right away, the sexual abuse. When we got home, I don't know that it's like immediately the next day, but then there were recalls of the sexual violations from there on as well. I remember hiding from her, being under this kitchen table and hiding. She had polio, so her one leg was sort of crippled. And so she didn't get down on her hands and knees and come get me out from under the table. And I remember she used to always say, you were a nervous wreck when we got you. You needed to be away from the reservation. I was not a nervous wreck. I was terrified because these were strangers. I didn't know who these people were. Plus, I started getting violated right away. She always put that on me. So as a child, as a young adult, that became my kind of became my identity. There's something wrong with me. When White Hawk was providing expert testimony, she shared her experiences, but she was frustrated when attorneys argued that hers was just one case and that the process of vetting parents had improved in the years since her removal. If only there was research to back up what she has for years heard from other fostered and adoptive Native people, including children. I was involved in this one court case and was seeing the judge look at a very old research because at the time there were only five research papers done on Native American adoptees. And the last one, the largest number of adoptees interviewed was 20. And in those papers, there still wasn't conclusive information about this is a risk. Adoption is not a secure solution. It's not the best solution to how to help children and families. And here it's being presented as 
in the best interest of children to be removed from an alcoholic home, abusive home, rather than help the family. And I left this one situation just so mad. And I just thought somehow we got to get some research going. I had started putting together in a forum those who had been separated through adoption, foster care, to tell their stories to mental health workers, uh, judges, lawyers, anybody who would come to our forum so that they could hear what the long-term impact of being separated can do to an individual. And so I thought, well, how do we put this into research? She contacted Carolyn Liebler, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Minnesota, who brought in Sarah Axtell of Family Social Science, a chain association that led to Ashley Landers. Before long, Whitehawk was collaborating with Landers, a licensed marriage and family counselor, who was then a doctoral researcher at Minnesota. If ever there were a case for community-based participatory research, this was it. That approach engages not just researchers, but community members and organizations in all aspects of the process. All of them contribute expertise and share in the decision-making and ownership of the study. The aim? To create deep understanding of a problem and then use that knowledge to impact policy and drive change. Ashley Landers. This is not my research, and I am not the center of this story. Um, Sandy and the other Native adoptees are the center of this story. Native families are the center of this story. And I have been um, fortunate enough to be invited into this sacred space to use the skills that I have to be helpful. I really do see that Sandy has vision, uh, that she has knowledge and expertise, and she guides and steers the projects. And my job is just to try to answer, how do we answer these questions? Really, my area is within secondary data analysis, or what I would call data mining, in that I have some analytic skills that allows me to take the questions that Sandy has and that others in the community bring forward, and then to think about how we might answer those questions with existing data or developing a research project that allows us to answer the questions. Questions like, do Native children suffer more abuse in adoptive and foster families than non-Native children? What barriers do Native adoptees face when they want to reunite with their tribes? Do American Indians and the child welfare system suffer more from mental health issues like anxiety and depression? The study about uh, maltreatment reoccurrence essentially looked at how Native fostered and adopted individuals are actually very vulnerable to being maltreated again in their foster and adoptive homes. And so the idea that we think if we remove a child from an environment, that somehow that puts them in a better condition is naive. Adoptees of all races report abuse, but in their first of its kind study, American Indian participants were significantly more likely to report physical abuse, 64%, compared to 38% of white respondents, and sexual abuse, 32%, compared to 21% of white respondents. Nearly half of the American Indian sample experienced spiritual abuse, which might include racial slurs or rejection of spiritual practices like native ceremonies or powwows. 
what we end up finding is that a lot of Native fostered and adopted individuals actually experienced re-victimization in their foster and adoptive homes at high rates, and that they were more likely to experience victimization. And it wasn't just emotional or physical or sexual or spiritual abuse. It's oftentimes what we would refer to as polyvictimization or complex trauma. It's these cumulative experiences of victimization. And the problem with victimization in this context is that it's in violation of the relationship. So it's the very person that you're supposed to be able to trust, your foster or adoptive parent or someone in a position of authority who should have cared for you and loved you, who violates that trust And the impact of that victimization within that caregiving relationship has a profound impact on how people see themselves and their development later of mental health struggles. That victimization and re-victimization is incredibly alarming, and we need to address that. Yes. One of the things that we found out, out of the 95 respondents for this study, almost 50% of them had contemplated or planned suicide and 20 of them attempted. Those findings were an offshoot from their first study in 2015 on Native adoptees repatriating with tribes. The original 95 Native fostered and adopted individuals had high rates of suicidal ideation and attempts. They had high rates of mental health problems like depression. And so We've replicated that in the second paper in the series that was published, which is the one of the papers on mental health problems that's been cited in the Supreme Court documents. And that is really looking at our Native individuals more likely to experience mental health problems in comparison to uh, white fostered and adopted individuals. And what we found is that both groups had high rates of depression, but that there were particular nuances that occurred in the Native sample. They were more likely to, for example, struggle with substance abuse or recovery. Even just the basic statistics in some of these studies tell us that there's profound impact of adoption. You could go on Facebook now and see adoption groups and all races talk about adoption trauma and growing up with the issues around adoption. And one of the things that people are ignoring in social services around this area is a study done in Minnesota uh, some years ago. And the conclusion on that study was that adoptees in general, not any particular race, but in general, are four times more likely to attempt suicide than non-adopted. And that's just the sense of loss, the sense of not being with your bio relation. It takes an exceptional parent to be able to feel comfortable in their own skin to recognize that they can love their child unconditionally. Their child can love back unconditionally, but that does not replace the need for the child to know who they look like, where they come from their history. Most states still have closed adoption records, so adoptees are not even privy to their own origins by law in most states. So the civil rights of adoptees are a huge issue as well. And love can't fix that. We're not blank slates and become who we're placed with. It doesn't happen that way. It's already determined who we're going to be. We can be influenced by our environment, but in terms of really understanding who we are, where we come from, what is our purpose in life, his most satisfying result is knowing, knowing that information. 
Whitehawk first experienced that knowing in 1988, when she traced her way back to the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. She was 35 when she met her aunts, uncles, her sister and brother, discovered family likeness that gave her belonging and traditions that she had never known, but felt were familiar in an unspoken way. Blood memory, she called it, in a documentary by that title in 2019. Most of us as adoptees do want to see our where we come from. We want to see our image reflected to us. We don't say that, but it's the draw, it's the pull, because we've spent a lifetime looking into the mirror at our face, looking at the family that we're in and the community that we're in, and we look like no one. So we have to erase that face, create a new image to be okay with, to look in the mirror. And I've heard so many adoptees, male and female, conclude that they're really ugly. And it's mostly just, we don't have that reflection of our body shape. We don't laugh like anyone. We don't have toes like the rest of the cousins. We don't have anything that connects us genetically. There is absolutely zero genetic juice. We feel the lack of that when we watch bio relatives interact. Even if they love us, the absence of that is impactful. So I had always wanted to know where I come from. I didn't know what a reservation was. I'm, I was raised for all intended purposes white, so I knew nothing. An uncle told her to come back to the Rosebud Fair every year so that she could meet relatives who came back too. This is your home, he told her. So ever since then, I did go home. I spent a week, one time I spent a month, and gone home two, three times a year or more ever since, because it is my home. It's where I took my first steps. It's who I am, all my relatives, and all anything that is me is there. And so that began that healing of not feeling I don't belong anywhere. I didn't feel alone or lonely anymore. But Whitehawk doesn't want this to be the image that sticks in your mind about her story. She is insistent about this. That's not the real story. She doesn't want a sugar-coated, feel-good spin to be put on all the pain that she and other adoptees have experienced. The reunification is important, but it shouldn't overshadow the problem that necessitated it. And while it's an exceptionally uh, important piece of my healing, I don't mind telling you some things. I just don't want that to be the big highlight because that's not the story. Mm-hmm. The story is that you were taken in the first place. The story is I was taken and the healing that it took to do it and how everyone wants this hallmark moment. Everything is okay now. Everything is not okay now. The Supreme Court will consider next term whether to overturn the law that has kept thousands of kids in their native cultures, cared for by relatives or other American Indians. Even now, Native children are placed in foster care at twice the rate of their peers, a 2015 study showed. Courts have eroded the Indian Child Welfare Act with decisions such as the Baby Veronica case in 2013, when SCOTUS ruled that a girl did not have to stay with her Native father. There are those who believe that Indian Child Welfare Act is a race-based law and that the Constitution protects you from anything like that. They are really twisting because ICWA is not a race-based law. 
It was founded on the fact that we belong to sovereign nations. Every tribe that's a federally recognized tribe is a, indeed a sovereign nation. What does that mean? It means they have their own leadership. They have a constitution. They have a tribal council. They have a government-to-government relationship with the United States government by state and by federal. As sovereign nations, they have the right to preserve their families, their culture, and their heritage, Whitehawk says. And that means holding close their youngest citizens. When the High Court does hear arguments on the Indian Child Welfare Act, Whitehawks and Landers Research will be included in an amicus brief that they receive. This was Sandy's vision, and I remember her telling me at one point that she hoped we'd have this research cited in the Supreme Court. And I trust Sandy, and I trusted her vision, but I never thought that this research would be part of the Supreme Court. Like, that's beyond anything I could have ever envisioned for this work to have accomplished this. And I think it's really because of the the work that tribes are doing, and even circling back to that idea of ICWA and the development of ICWA is really about tribal communities coming forward to document this. It's about Indian women and these mothers and grandmothers talking about the removal of Native children. These welfare people took me in and they wanted to take the child. And I said, no, I can't. I can't let him go. While this man jumps up and my little boy was out in the hallway in the entrance, He went out and he grabbed the child and he was going to walk out with him and the little boy fought. We sometimes forget the fact that there was outcry, that there was outrage within these communities, that they rallied together to say this wasn't acceptable. And the challenges to ICWA now are really undermining tribal sovereignty to define themselves. Everyone is an expert. Everyone has an expertise that they lend to this process that will eventually become what elevates the community. I believe every community has within it everything they need to heal and address what's going on. Tell me the word again, the Lakota word for child. Wakayaja. Every Indian language has a name for their babies that refers to them as a sacred being. Wakayaja in Lakota is sacred being because we believe when a child is first born, they're still connected to the spirit world that they came from. The real message I like to convey is that families need and deserve services directed at healing intergenerational trauma, period. All families But as far as Native families, because people don't know we're here and because they have biases toward us and not understanding that we have a thriving culture and that within our thriving culture, children are the center of it. Everything we do is to prepare that generation that's coming up behind us. 